All right, so welcome to the podcast, Hashing It Out. I'm here with uh, today's guest, Corey Petty. Uh, can you introduce yourself? <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah, that Jesse turned my job, even though I am here and even on oh, camera okay. today. You just rolled right into it. I liked it. Yeah, I'm in. You did it well. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. uh, who are you? Yeah. So, Why are you here once? I am being interviewed mm. and I have to do an intro. Mm-hmm. My name is Dr. Corey Petty. I do a bunch of things. I wear many hats and the current hat that I focus on is um, research and project management in creating what we would consider its status, public goods infrastructure. So I basically run a number of teams that focus on building the pillars of decentralized infrastructure. So a bunch of projects, like individualized projects that do that. And I try and make sure that they're all kind of going in the same direction, uh, working on kind of the overall mission and identifying which ways they work together, which ways they don't, how they are independently verified, like independently viable. And um, yeah, a bunch of that stuff and a bunch of other peripheral things that have come from my historic time spent in all the different places of crypto. Cool. I want to take it back. I want to, I want to take it back maybe a decade and I want to rewind mm-hmm. to when, when Corey was probably doing uh, his PhD. So you want to tell me a little bit about how you uh, progressed through your education and what led you to crypto? Hmm. Sure. We can go back even further than a decade to kind of give sure. some motivation as to like how I ended up in the field I was in in the first place and how that ended up being useful for, or interesting for crypto. Um, I've always loved computers and I've always loved taking things apart and understanding the individual pieces that go together to make them work. So like, for instance, I like for any toy or like, electronic that I had, I invariably took it apart to understand how how the pieces were put together and what each piece did and things like that. And I always put it back together or tried to with always a few extra screws left over that I forgot to put back in. Um, But I had a computer at a very young age. I probably built my first one when I was seven before the internet. I got to witness the internet. We had the internet in our house at a very young age. and, and I had the computer in my room with the internet at a very young age. So I was always on computers and doing things and trying to kind of figure out how they worked and take them apart and mess the operating system and whatever. And that then eventually led me to doing a physics degree because um, reasonably speaking, it's just problem solving skills and a lot of the same thing of how do I take this thing apart to its primitive pieces and then put it back together so I understand how things work. Um, and when you mix computers and physics, you end up in the field that I was in, which was computational chemical physics, which is reasonably, spe- I guess, in a, in a, in a, the easiest way to put, I was solving physics and chemistry problems, well, solving chemistry problems 
using fundamental physics on supercomputers. Um, so I got to kind of like bastardize or piece together all the things that I liked into um, my field, which was just doing a bunch of like really hard problem solving on computers. And part of that part of that skill set that I developed in the process of doing my PhD was um, thinking about how you can optimize software, optimize software to work really well on on hardware. So that that linkage between um, how do you make software work better based on the hardware that it's running on. Um, so when you're because when you're trying to solve these really, really hard problems on supercomputers, you end up with this um, parallelism problem of how do I break a problem up in such a way that it um, can run on this on a bunch of different places on a supercomputer so that you're not spending too much time pushing all the messages, pushing all the information out and then not doing doing a little bit of work and then doing all kinds of time to push it back in so you can gather the answer to try to balance those two things between communication and computation. And that was a lot of the like stuff that I learned and paradigms that I learned in the process of doing my PhD. So when I learned about Bitcoin through like a TED talk doing my PhD, I was fascinated by the computational problem that Satoshi solved with proof of work and the longest chain rule and how you're able to remove one of the previously thought fundamental pieces of value networks that is humans. You could remove a human or like trusting humans and the, in, in the, in the process of making money, like, like, like literally making money, like printing money or even sending money. Uh, and that was a computational problem that I was interested in. And then that just flew me down the rabbit hole of all the stuff, all the technology involved, because I'm doing the same thing, breaking into as many pieces as I can, trying to understand how it works. And, and then here I am. I've just been doing that for the past 10 years. So in supercomputing, I guess you were working with uh, clusters, but you don't, you don't really have to worry about security, right? Because you're not worried about anything other than like fault uh, fault tolerant related problems rather than like, um, Byzantine mm -hmm. problems within, within mm -hmm. the, that realm. So how did you, how did you, and, um, where did you pick up the, the knowledge that's necessary to do security in the ecosystem? Yeah, that's a, that was, that was an interesting, I didn't expect to enter into that field. It was kind of a happy accident, I'd say. Um, the process of having complete understanding of how something works is really useful when you're trying to figure out the ways in which something can go bad. In fact, like my favorite definition of expert is the person who knows, um, the most things not to do, uh, basically they know how to avoid all the gotchas that a, that a novice would stumble upon eventually so that they're more efficient at the job or they don't break things. Um, but when I left academia to pursue blockchain full time, I went from a data science perspective. Like I, I, that was the route that I took because it was a 
valuable, like a well-paying job that had a lot of demand and the skills that I had learned in academia transferred over really nicely. Like a lot of the analysis that I had to do for the problems I was trying to solve was, was data science. And all the math that I knew was um, more math than you need to be a data scientist. And the type of software skills that I had learned was the same thing, like a lot of optimization and statistics and probability. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go do data science and try and finagle in Bitcoin and blockchain to my, to my job by like being like by, by proselytizing it to whatever company I ended up going to. But fortunately I stumbled upon a job that needed people to give them, um, kind of an educational resource for the tech, Bitcoin technology, um, as well as doing some underlying data science for the software development they did, uh, within the organization. So I got to do both for the, from, like from the start. So I, I wrote, um, educational courses for people who had clearances and worked on probably, I don't know exactly what they worked on. So I don't have a clearance, but I would imagine illicit finance related stuff in cleared spaces. And they didn't, and, and, and the government was trying to understand what to do with Bitcoin or like how to approach it, how to understand it. And there weren't many, there weren't good resources on how to understand it very well. And, and coming from somewhat of an education background doing, I did a lot of like graduate teaching and I've always really, really cared about pedagogy and my mentor really, really cared about the process of teaching. So I got to learn a lot from him and I was able to make, I was able to explain things really well. So that was fun. I got to basically write courses explaining how this stuff works and all of its components to, to people who were trying to figure out how to solve hard problems that I didn't get to know about. Um, and that was a, like a, that company was a government contracting security related company. So I, in the process of being there, I learned a lot from the people who were there. I then moved to Booz Allen Hamilton doing what I would call offensive security, breaking critical infrastructure, like, uh, industrial control systems, ICS and SCADA systems, which run critical infrastructure in the United States. Uh, so finding weaknesses in those things and coming up with novel blockchain based solutions to fix them. So I then got to move into a company where I was with like the cream of the crop of hackers in the United States that were using their skills to create products that solve problems that hackers could break things with. Um, so I learned a tremendous amount there about the concept of security, what people care about, best practices for solving things and stuff like that. So like the combination of me understanding, like having core understanding of the technology and then um, being exposed to a lot of like best practices and security through those two companies gave me a, a good background to start thinking about the same type of stuff in the industry. Because at that time, there wasn't a lot of focus on security because the wasn't big enough, it wasn't, industry was didn't have reached that threshold of legitimacy legitimacy where like traditional security folks are paying attention. And so I just think I ha happened to have a reasonable background and skill set to start contributing to that type of stuff. Christian, do you have any uh, questions? I honestly was just thinking you were helping with the security measure when you didn't have the clearance to know 
what you were actually working on was that like part of the creative process or i feel like that would drive me insane but no that i mean matter it was, at all the, to the, you? the requirements were really simple back then it was we need to understand how bitcoin works so that we can find its weaknesses or do the work we need to do to do whatever the hell we're doing inside the space so the the request for me was teach us about bitcoin how does it work? What are the core technologies? What are the implement like uh, the like um, what's the word I'm looking for? Implications. How can you like how can you do forensics on the blockchain? Because like we had the, the company had a lot of data science products projects. So like entity analysis was a large part of some of their software offerings. So looking at the blockchain and then using that source of information to try and glean as much information about the people doing things is ostensibly a data science problem how do you do entity analysis on um transaction transactional data to try and group people to see who's who and so they wanted to know transaction formats input output formats what you know what a specific type of activity translates to when you look at the, the blockchain and the data inside of it so you can't do that type of work if you don't understand how those core components fit together and what technology is being used. Like if you don't understand what a UTXO is, then you can't do that work. And so their job is, they asked me just like make a course to teach us all the ways in which Bitcoin works. Interesting. So you were like the, the Udemy professor before like, you know, courses popped up on. Yeah, on but I couldn't what, share it, what is which was, yeah. which kind of sucks. I mean, by now, if they're still using that, which they may be, it's incredibly yeah. outdated. I mean, like some of the core technology is the same. Bitcoin doesn't change that much. Yeah. But trying to do that work today and using that as your point of reference would be a terrible idea. But there's much better courses out now than what I did. As somebody who's taken some courses from these online learning platforms about, you know, uh, how Bitcoin works and then also in the past done podcasts on how bitcoin works with d um there there's a there's a better understanding not complete i would say because like i i'm not a network engineer like i wouldn't know how to implement some of the uh, messaging uh that's involved in bitcoin in terms of communication between nodes but i think i have an appreciation for the complexities involved at least um and then it's it's only uh it's only the appreciation is only greater for people who are building uh, out POS networks, I guess, and trying to scale uh, then the nodes beyond, you know, thousands to hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions. Um, so That's one aspect, I guess, of it. but like the real problem with a lot of the content is mm -hmm. the structure of it and the narrative they play, the narrative, the story they tell in the process of teaching it. Like, helping a, someone who doesn't understand something like how you come up with the process of teaching them because you already know it, teaching something to somebody who doesn't know what you know and mm -hmm. not teaching it as like, as if they should already know it is really hard. And most of the content is like, I'm teaching it the way I think about it now, not the way I need to start thinking about it in the future using concepts that I already know. And that's how most teaching done as a general. That's why people hate math and physics and things like that is because teachers teach it as if you already know the concepts and 
that's the hard part for this is because the concepts are so different than what people already understand. If you're not teaching it from those perspectives, then it's people aren't going to get it. Yeah, you. I think a, a good teacher knows how to watch the facial expressions on a student's face. And when they explain a concept at a level that may be too senior, they'll make it more junior on the fly and then explain kind of missing fundamental concepts that trigger that, you know, aha moment in, in the student's um, expressions, at least. And then the student mm -hmm. can kind of provide better feedback in terms of do I understand this or not? Um, but yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, when it comes to your current work, um, what is the, what is the state of infrastructure in terms of the ability to scale messaging to, you know, a large amount of, you know, nodes? Is that even possible? How about for consensus is, you know, is having a sub second uh, finality consensus mechanism um, possible without having, um, you know, application specific, you know, machines? No, uh, I mean, we have there's 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 like fundamental limitations to some of these things. And so based on and it's always like you need to optimize for something. And when you look at when you add this aspect of a large portion of the people participating in this network are act could possibly be actively trying to thwart the process. It makes things so much harder. So even if you just like take that, take them out of the, the, the whole equation together. Right. And we're just going to talk about um, doing a process in a distributed manner and what yeah. limitations happen there. Right. You already, you are already limited by the speed of light in a wire. So how long it takes a message to travel from one node to another. And if the scale of distribution is the globe, then just go ahead and take your baseline to be the, like the longest route for any given message, right? However long mm -hmm. it takes a message to travel across the internet because we're still using the internet, right? We still have to use the, like the infra, like the physical infrastructure of the internet to do right. these, these, these networks. Um, we can't teleport photons the, yet and, and the associated like guaranteed process that some of those messages aren't going to make it. So like, we just have hardware failures there's, there's no like mal maliciousness associated with it. It's just some, some messages get dropped because it's cosmic rays and shit. Uh, like you're already, you're already hitting limitations there. And so mm -hmm. when you try to scale the number of people participating, and you want to have some level of synchronicity, meaning that one event happens after another, and like everyone's in lockstep agreement, like this thing can't happen until everyone's at this state. This thing can't happen until this state, right? Then you have to wait for all those messages to settle. And the more people you introduce into that process and the number of steps in that process that need to be done until the whole thing is over give you fundamental limitations. And if you start adding layers of security and encryption, then you have computational resources coming into play. Like there's so many cycles that my CPU needs to do in order to decrypt this message because you have to encrypt it so that other people can't get access to it or whatever, right? There's like anytime you add an additional requirement mm -hmm. or 
complexity into the process, then there's a, a, a trade-off with it. And just yep. the base number of requirements for these networks is large. Like I said, we have to make things that are resilient to a large group, large subsection of the participants actively trying to keep it from happening. Yeah. I think a lot of, uh, in the, in the domain of zero knowledge, um, I, I know that Filecoin, they use 3090s, um, like they use, um, they use hardware accelerated GPUs, right. Um, to provide the proofs. Um, so I don't know, a lot of the ZK stuff, it does need to, in terms of like proof generation needs to be run on beefy machines, but at, at the, yeah. At the expense of these beefier machines, you you do allow lighter clients to potentially participate. You know, like mobile clients. Mm -hmm. um, do you see that as a possible direction in which the projects you're working on are might currently explore? I see zero knowledge being the only direction in which these things can actively scale out while still providing the guarantees that we have come to um like assume are a part of these networks censorship resistance privacy like security things like that um because that scale of trust doesn't it, you you can't get it through uh the the way in which we've done it in the past which is everyone does everything and, and everyone's kind of equal within the network. And so Bitcoin started with that concept of like one CPU, one vote, everyone participates, everyone has a full copy of the data and can replicate the entire thing from the Genesis file to today. Um, and they do this on commoditized hardware to what it looked, what Bitcoin looks like today, which is not that at all. It is very large, high capital firms putting a lot of investment into very specific hardware to do the validation process. That's mining equipment and the underlying manufacturing and distribution and centralization risks associated with that and mining pools, which is a separate centralized risk. And that's just a subset of the people who do the validation of the network. Then you have people who run nodes for business purposes and uh, various people that need to do so to run the lightning network and things like that. And then you have then you have end users, which just have a wallet on their phone. So they've already started to make that differentiation of separating players in the entire network based on what they need to do, while still having the same idea of like it's a trustless system, right? So you've already made that change from it's trustless because I have all the data myself and I validate the network and I participate in the mining process to a very differentiated set of players and associated like requirements in the network to, to operate. So, and, and, and the method they do it is inefficient. It doesn't scale. So zero knowledge is a really good way of maximizing the efficiency of the players while giving stronger proofs that um, people are fucking it up along the way. So you're able to do proofs without like, it's like the, and to, to backtrack the work being done so that massive capital investment and the computation being done to provide security for Bitcoin network uh, 
is arguably useless. Um, it's just doing a SHA-256 hash, or a double SHA-256 hash, um, a, just a metric shitload of times until it happens to find, hopefully, um, a specific hash that has a number of zeros before it based on what the difficulty level is. And it's basically like, it's a, it's a cryptographic puzzle that we know is fair. That's it. That's the only thing that's providing. And so if you solve that puzzle, we have a very strong uh, understanding of the work that is probabilistically has to go in to solve that puzzle. And we can assume if you can provide a proof, which is very small and easy to validate and pass around the network, then we can assume on average that that person did the work because you can't cheat it, right? And we know it's fair. So that's all, that's all it's doing. It's not providing any functional work other than fairness in, in, in the network. The work being done by these specialized hardware and zero knowledge is not that. It's, it's real work doing a lot of different complex cryptographic procedures depending on what you want to do. And so you're not going to end up probably in the same scenario where you have one thing doing one thing stupidly and a lot of manufacturing going into it, but you have a lot of specialized hardware going into it. Because I don't think eventually graphic, the GPUs aren't gonna be the only thing that create proofs. You'll end up with some level of ASIC, but it's not one ASIC to do all of it. It's one ASIC to do this one thing that's useful for the network and can't be done otherwise. Uh, and it allows people to make the same guarantees, but with a lot more strength and privacy in the process. So I think that like zero knowledge is the only way in which we can scale these networks that give the same and better guarantees of how the network works and providing the end users, those people at the very end who just want to just use the network and not give a shit. Yeah. A lot more guarantees with much, much, much less resources they have to put into the network to get those guarantees. So like they'll be able to validate proofs on their phone really well uh and don't need to carry on the weight of the blockchain in some cases we may not even need a blockchain at all we just have because the the proofs are giving you the guarantees that the construction of the blockchain and proof of work gives you i do you do you feel though as if uh zero knowledge is kind of wrestling wrestling the kind of self-sovereignty that running you know a miner on bitcoin gave you probabilistically uh is wrestling that kind of power and that potential that option to be kind of quote unquote self like a self-sovereign participant in the network and kind of saying okay we're gonna you know build this system that can cryptographically prove that these computations had been have been done and cryptographically prove that this data exists and is retrievable but you're not actually in in control of you know the execution environment nor you know where the data actually lives do you think it's kind of like like technically it's it's making the process usable and and the experience uh, better for the end user because this is, I think, how we can get to 
equally performant applications built in a distributed manner. But I, I, at least my opinion is, is that control is being wrestled from normal people and they just don't know it yet. What are your thoughts? I don't think that's true. Um, so like my, I'm going to, I'm going to keep doubling down on this moniker and make it my thing. My, my okay. motto in crypto is we're, we're building asshole resistant technology. That's it. Zero knowledge proofs and they're incredibly diverse application within the ecosystem gives us a lot more options and efficiency for building better asshole resistant technologies at every layer. Um, so what's interesting about, so there's two things that, application as your knowledge typically does and they're almost on competing scales competing sides of the coin one is aggregation and compression so they're able to take a lot of things and compress it into a very small succinct thing in zk snarks the the s in snarks stands for succinct and which means small um or the other side of the coin so you have aggregation and compression and then you have privacy and that is something that we've lacked tremendously across the board. So whenever, whenever any type of privacy that's currently exists, previously existed in blockchain networks has been some layer of encryption on top of the blockchain. So how do we then encrypt the information we're putting into the blockchain with the majority of that work being pioneered by Zcash and an alternative route and work being done by um, Monero, I'd say. Um, so it's really interesting to come up with an asshole resistant technology that says that like, that is, you're going to do this work and we're going to pay you for it. That just proves that someone played by the rules. That's it. That's all, that's all a privacy focused zero knowledge snark does is you define a set of rules and create what's called a circuit. And then you can create proofs. You can do something within that within that game of rules, and you can create a proof that says, "I'm going to do this thing." But you don't get to know what I did. You're going to look at the the encrypted piece of data that I give you and an associated proof that says I played by the rules, and you can validate that. You can show like you can show that I did everything that was legal inside the system, but you don't get to know anything about what I did. Now, if you build that, then it's really hard for someone to be an asshole who's proving things, right? They can't manipulate anything that, that you've done other than deny you service saying like, I'm just not going to validate you. I'm not going to process your transaction because they don't know anything that you did. Whereas if we look at things now, people like the point of validation in Bitcoin is to process all of the transactions, understand what everyone did, and then order them in such a way that you're maximally going to profit by what transactions you include into that block, if you get the chance to add a block to the network. But if you don't get any insight to what happens, then you can't order those transactions in such a way to maximally benefit things, other than just saying like, how many fees am I gonna get out of this? Um, so if you have any type of desire to stop someone from doing something or stop a certain type of activity, you can't do it. And so I would call that asshole resistant. 
because my definition of an asshole is someone who wants to do something at the cost of other people. And so like, it's not taking control from the end user. It's keeping the control from the people who currently have it and giving it back to the end users in my opinion. I guess if you look at like somebody like uh, like an entity like Polygon, right? Where you can't run any of the validators, I think, right? Or like an like a like an L2 where oh, you're they saying scale like using we're, we're, knowledge. We're centralizing that role to a small subset of people. Right. Well, because because of we don't need to trust uh, them anymore. That's the point. As long as it's what I would call sufficiently differentiated, mm -hmm. um, meaning that one person can't do it. If one person screws up, there's another person to just take their spot immediately. Yeah. Uh, and that happens enough such that like you can trust that something's gonna get done in the right way. They don't have the they don't have the capability of taking control. So as long as you, you have confidence that it gets done, then you don't need to do it. Because in realistically speaking, in real life, like access to resources isn't equal or the care to do everything all the time isn't equal. So requiring everyone to do everything from the get-go is a, is a poor design. I think so to I, your point, an encrypted opinion. mempool and encryption in terms of and transaction encryption um, will definitely play a big role in protecting people's privacy and is definitely what zero-knowledge stuff will be used for. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the goal, I think, in a lot of what we're trying to do is rethink how we've built this stuff in the past and come up with ways yeah. in which things can't be messed with at the layers below. Cause we just assume like, Oh, we took trust out of it. Well, we took trust out of a process, a part of it, but mm -hmm. the pro yeah. the way in which we did it added, added quite a few abilities to still manipulate that process. And now we're trying to find ways to do it. And turns out this branch, of cryptography is really really useful for it and it's new so we didn't know that at the first time like zero knowledge has been around for a while 40 years or so yeah applicable zero knowledge has not so like yeah. it's the it's the succinctness that's the new part we're able to do this on commodity hardware in a time frame and data size that's reasonable for a distributed system like it used to be you know huge pieces of data for proofs you, it's, you can't pass that around the internet and in like the time frame we need to come to consensus so like it's it's the it's the advancement that these, these things got efficient enough that we could use them in a distributed way when they started become becoming useful for us but like the field's been around for a very long time hashing it out is working with infinity keys to let you claim a free listener nft for this episode you can find the Hashing It Out Challenge on the infinitykeys.io puzzle page or use the link in the show notes. Enter this week's passcode, JustPetty. That's J-U-S-T-P-E-T-T-Y. Then claim the NFT on Ethereum, Avalanche, Polygon, or Optimism. So I had a question about uh, DevCon. You know, you and Jesse both went. Just what did anything blow your mind there? Like, did you see any good loot, like, concepts or people or anything just what was your experience like there i'll let you go first <laughs> it's hard to blow my mind now uh unfortunately 
like that bright eyed bushy tail like everything is awesome phase of being in this industry is is hard for me to experience now and zero knowledge actually is what gives me a lot of it it's like you can do what how and it that that lack of understanding is is exciting to me but um unfortunately also the process of being in being around so long and going to these things for so many times is i don't see many talks uh i end up trying to go to a talk and then running into people on the way and chatting with them or taking like because like i know i've been these these the conferences are the value on the conferences is more in the fact that there's a bunch of uh people that i want to talk to in the same place same physical place at the same time and so i tend to spend my time talking to people more than seeing talks because i can just go watch them on the internet later uh but there were a few talks that i really did enjoy um one of them was Eaton's talk, Etan's talk from from Nimbus, the Nimbus team about uh, a, an interesting way to provide a lot of security and making light clients feasible now, based on w some uh, consequences of the merge and the move from Ethereum's proof of work to proof of stake. So you're able to like add a lot of security to a light client, uh, which basically means someone who's trying to get in. For information from the blockchain without running all the infrastructure themselves they just ask someone for it but like how do you know what how do you know the from what, what you got is what's actually there from the person you asked so like we're able to prove those things now in a really really efficient way so that was a talk on that and i really enjoyed it um we also ran into this guy uh who is who had a radio tower on his back he was running around demoing uh this like proof of concept that he had come up with uh on basically creating a self-sovereign radio network in the united states that you can use crypto to uh pay for and he just had the demo he had, he, had a, he had a little radio tower in his backpack that that did i think it was 5g maybe 4g and he had a, like basically like a, a hacked SIM card in uh, old Pixel. And he showed us the whole process and then had internet on his phone. You could, I could use my phone and log into the Wi-Fi that he was broadcasting. You can basically like, you know, you turn your phone into a hotspot. So it took the 4G hotspotted Wi-Fi from his phone. And then I was just browsing Reddit off his like hacked radio network. And uh that was a really cool thing so like you can end up building these self-sovereign radio networks that allow you to like leverage smart contracts for participation any way you want and i think that's really cool like and this is just some dude who built it out of a hobby and is running around with it damn that's super cool i was uh i was going to the booths trying to figure out how to start an ethereum node because uh i i wanted to run one i have a an old laptop that i upgraded recently um to run an ethereum node but yeah i went to the dap node booth and uh i saw po lansky or and then i saw eduardo and then i went to the other booth sterium and then i i went to the the public goods infrastructure booths 
um, Live Peer was there uh, and a few other uh, entities. But yeah, and then I went to the hacker basement, tried to get tried to get it running. It didn't run. Uh, so I kept going up back upstairs and asking for help. Um, but ultimately, I wasn't able to get it running there, but I was able to get it running at home. So and then, yeah, in yeah. terms of talks. Yeah, like Corey said, Eaton's talk, that was really great. I wasn't able to watch it in person. I went to uh, some other talks. I went to one on the the uh, DAS research that Ethereum is doing to try and uh, DAS research? do the skill slot. Yeah, DAS, uh, d was it data availability sampling? Oh. Yeah. So that was, that was interesting. It's a lot of nerds talking about a lot of nerdy stuff. And well, like, yeah, he just nerds. said hacker basement as if that was like something like oh yeah went to the hacker basement and i'm just like it was Let's circle back the, to this <laughs> oh so like they took the, the 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 this was actually really cool they do this a lot in these events um which i like a lot um like it's not just conferences but they make a lot of rooms for people to basically do work and actually yep. the day after the conference they use the entire venue or the first floor of the venue as a co-working space so you could just stay there and then go do work with people or beat. Uh, but yeah, they, they turn, so they use the convention center in Bogota. I think it was the convention center. Um, and they, and the, the basement layer is a parking lot, but they just said, no, we're going to turn this into like a hacker basement. Uh -huh. And they put, they turned the lights off. They put a bunch of neon stuff and music and screens everywhere and sofas and tables and electrical outlets and Wi-Fi and snacks. And people just sat down there and worked. And it was like a really cool setting to just sit there and get stuff done or relax for a bit. That's yep. fun. They had bean bags. They had uh, wooden box blocks that you could. Uh... They're really like, they're, the events are super fun to go to. Not just for the talks, but for just the, the setting. Like you meet a lot of such a diverse set of people, kooky people, smart people, like people like the the I guess the people you would consider like titans in the industry, like the leaders of all these things. And they're it's so open that everyone wants to talk to you or tell you what they're doing and so on and so forth. So like, but like, you, if you you can usually get whatever you want out of these venues depending upon whether or not you'd like to chill see talks meet people be exposed to new stuff whatever buy things <laughs> even sleep they have uh like green rooms that are dark but like have like a under underlit green dark green rainforesty theme and then you can just uh just take a nap in a hammock um yeah they have some pretty neat stuff we need to have more of those in real life. Like, why is that not like an availability? Just like out at a grocery store. A bunch like, of, I need a nap. You got a bunch of like, like of like a kind of idealistic nerds together, you know? Mm, and then my make, favorite and then say, make, make an event. And it's usually what comes out to like, just be weird, but mm. good. No. Yeah. Okay. What else you got? Let's see. My thing is Jesse's got all the technical ones and I've just got like all the old general guys. Like, what do you, Oh, actually there is one. It, what is the concept or something that you're like, why are we not using 
blockchain for this? Like, is there something that you're like, life would be so much easier for everyone if we would just use blockchain here? Mm. What's an application of blockchain that people aren't using that should be used for, right? Yeah. Uh, access control. No, people do so, that. Not really. NFTs uh, as access control. What do you mean? No one uses. No one does that. That's 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 a, that's a concept that has just now started to kind of enter into the mainstream, if you will, of like, oh, you can do this and it's useful, right? But like, if you think it about, was, it was all the rage though with the MeBit, like the or Me Six bot on Discord. You know, all the people making their custom bots on Discord started integrating NFTs as access points, like to join Discord channels. Yeah, but that, that's to, like a you're not you're not really like it's 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 almost like a shitty version of it but it's it's, it's yeah it's, it is. that is a that is a indication that people are catching on to this is one of the in my opinion main use cases of this technology so if you think about what a blockchain is or these blockchain networks it is literally just an ordering of events and a ledger of who has what that is very 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 difficult to manipulate so you have digital ownership and a record of that digital ownership and the ability to make assets digitally like digitally scarce assets in a programmatic way and then when you add smart contracts to this you can then add arbitrary rules to how those things get passed around so the first thing we did was made money we can make digital assets and we have a very difficult thing, but very, very difficult to manipulate ledger of who owns what assets and a way for them to transfer them to each other without requiring middlemen to be there. That's an obvious first application is money. But a real more interesting one when it comes to like how humans interact with each other, because money is just the way in which humans interact with each other. They transfer value because they made a deal and there's a lot of other things going on around like, you know, pro you know, money is a proxy for influence or paying for goods and services or whatever. So like in terms of money, it's a reasonable thing, but you're only getting a portion of the human relationship. But if you generalize that a bit more and think about how humans have relationships with each other, like we kind of section off access to th things based on who needs to see or do what governance um like content creation and influencer markets and building a community and sectioning off like responsive roles and responsibilities for people to do stuff in an organization if you just look at what discord does or or, or any business management software like the primitives that they have are who has access to what and what controls do they have when they get there? And that's a much better application for this decentralized, hard to tamper with thing that allows you to understand who has what and what access they have. Right. Like it's just, a, it's, it's, it's just an obvious use of blockchain. Like we can programmatically say this, per, like only people with these things can do this stuff and it's really hard for anyone to manipulate that or change it or we're basically using the 
optimistically using our assumptions that cryptography works and that's the level of security you get associated with it like you can't break this unless you break cryptography <laughs> and that's way better than the way we do it today which is i assume discord is going to not let the people that i've set up roles for do the things they can't do but if they wanted to they could and with almost every single instance of technology that we use for permissions and access management has that ability based on who runs this who, who's running the software that that sets those things up blockchain allows us to remove once again remove humans from the process of doing that thing what pops into my head is right now like Ticketmaster, 14 million people trying to get taylor swift tickets if instead of these passwords they had implemented NFTs. this and been like nfts then this whole thing could have just not been a thing i mean in theory so it's it's, it's I, I, I actually kind of funny when you, you bring that up because we were talking about this aaron my wife brought this up that like Ticketmaster went crazy and broke and then the price of taylor swift tickets went to like thirty something thousand dollars or something ridiculous um and it's it's funny to me and this is this is an indication of how hard these problems are we still don't build web 2 technology that works at massive scale mm -hmm. in terms of like okay massive change of scale if you will so Ticketmaster runs real smoothly if the process if the number of people trying to use it is under a certain amount and the moment you have a massive spike of people trying to use something on the internet quickly always breaks without fail you ever tried to buy a ps5 when they came out good fucking luck or buy a right? custom keyboard none of the stuff we've built deals with that change in scale very well uh blockchain basically handles it by in a, in a few different ways because at least the way current blockchains are implemented, you can only fit so many transactions in it per second on the chain. Uh, so two things can happen. If you're going to pay the same amount to do that thing, then you're going to wait. So you've basically built up a queue of, I want to do this thing, but so many, so many want to do it that you're gonna have to wait a while before your transaction gets processed and then eventually added to the blockchain. Um, or, you pay a lot more because you've built up a digital scarcity. The digital scarcity is the number of transactions you can fit in a single block within a specific time frame. Uh, if I want to do it now, then I pay more. So you end up with a fee market of some sort. And those are two reasonable things to do if you would like to set up a global resource that everyone uses. But yeah, that's a really good application. Like. But we still we're not near the scales. I don't think yet. We will be maybe with rollups and some of the other uh, scalability solutions available to start doing things like that, and it making sense. Because like at the same time, I don't need my Taylor Swift ticket to live on the blockchain forever. I need it. To, I need it to live there long enough for me to use it, and then never again. So I don't need everyone. You're not a Taylor Swift fan. You're not hardcore enough, Corey. To store yeah. <laughs> The fact that I bought a Taylor Swift ticket. The like, Swifties I mean, are so, going like, to keep It's an inefficient forever. use today, but eventually we'll find ways of doing it better. 
What'd you say? I said those Swifties are going to keep that NFT forever. You are. Well, yeah, that, there's an aspect of like, <laughs> you're not a super fan of there, Taylor And Swift, it's neat Corey. to have that level of like historical access. But at the same time, requiring the resources of a small nation and everyone to hold on to it if they would like to have any piece of information on the blockchain is a bit insistent. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, for now, if it was like purposes. Coheed and Cambria, I could probably get behind it. But like Taylor Swift, <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. Definitely not Swifty. All right. Well, uh, do you do you think we have uh, covered everything, or do you have any questions that you think you may have wanted us to ask but we didn't ask? You're wearing that. You know, that's a that's a that's a disarming question. <laughs> I've asked it. That's kind of, that's my go to question. And after receiving mm -hmm. it, it's a disarming yeah. question. Uh, I didn't have an agenda when I came here, so no. Um, <laughs> Fun, Nobody though. does. It's the key question. Oh, hey, they do. We've been people, talking oh, about people who come on podcasts. Time. People who come on podcasts tend to say yes because they have an agenda and they want their voice heard. If your line of questioning oh. doesn't hit it, they're like, "Oh, thanks for asking. I really wanted to talk about this. Come buy my product, you know, or whatever their spiel is." Right? It is usually pre prefaced by, "Oh, what a good question. Let me think." Yeah, and Here unfortunately, yeah. I did the exact same thing because I was disarmed <laughs> by it. And it's my fucking question. <laughs> it's, it's... Well, we did have uh, D sending in a request to ask your favorite ice cream flavor. So if you want to give up that oh, little nugget. Oh, that's a good one. It's uh, a good, good question. Thank you. Um, there's been a new flavor of Bluebell. For those of you who don't know who Bluebell is, uh, you're clearly in the north. And I'm sorry you have never experienced this in your life uh bluebell is a brand of ice cream that gave a bunch of made a bunch of people sick once but other than that has been mm -hmm. the best brand of ice cream in the world pretty great uh they created something called uh cookie two-step and it is a mixture of cookie dough and uh, cookies and cream oh and it is absurdly good and i can't yeah. stop eating it but it's really hard to find it's like a it it's like a, a new thing that they're I guess sampling, and everywhere I've ever been is always sold out of it. So I'm hoping that they just ramp up production. It's so good. That sounds really good. It is. It's everything you want more. <laughs> I'm gonna see if I can find it. All right. What a great interview! Thank you, Corey, for being our guest for today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here, guys. <laughs>